The theme for this morning is joy. Joy is, uh, well, something we associate with Christmas, isn't it? It's uh, all through our carols and hymns, it's in our prayers and liturgy, that Christmas is about joy. The angels even said it, I bring you tidings of great joy. So, what is this joy that we are experiencing at Christmas? What causes us joy at Christmas? I'd like to turn to your neighbour for about 20 seconds and talk about what brings you joy at Christmas. brings joy at Christmas? Family? Anything else? Goodwill? Presence. There you go, an honest person in the front. All the rest of you were thinking that, but you thought you wouldn't say. You just got to move around it. Anything else? Food. Yes, food. All our liturgies talk about how those who were present had great joy and how creation experiences great joy and how we are expected to have great joy. But I wonder what brings God joy at Christmas. We think about what brings us joy, but what brings God joy? In the last couple of weeks, Pope Francis has put out his first encyclical. So he has put out another one, but Benedict wrote most of that one, and it was all in Benedict's language. Uh, whereas this one is in the, the new Pope's language, which is a lot less formal and a lot less academic. And in it, he talked about how rampant capitalism was an evil. Now, you can imagine that some people on Fox in America would not be happy with that, because they are the champions of rampant capitalism. They see that as the core belief of anything American and Christian. And so they wondered, particularly one commentator, whether the Pope was a Marxist. And they were using that in a negative way. Well, as I read that news article, skimmed through it, I wondered whether that commentator had ever read the Gospels. And in particular, whether he had ever read the Song of Mary, that song that we did this morning. Now that song, we, we like to think of Mary as meek and mild and everything she said is nice, and uh, we, lots of us have said that hymn or chanted that hymn at Evensong over the years, and I wonder how often we've thought about the words that we are saying or chanting. About how the rich will be sent empty away and how the hungry will be given food, how the powerful will be brought down and the poor will be raised up. 
wonder how many of us on a global scale have ever thought that's not particularly good news for me because actually in the scheme of things I'm with the rich the well-fed and the powerful it might not feel like it but on a global scale that's where we are well over the years there have been a number of rulers who've read that and said we will not let this be prayed in public it is too subversive and so Mary's song has been banned in the last hundred years in three South American countries it was banned because it was too subversive people were reading it and taking it seriously and that was not good news for the rich and the powerful so here's a question what brings God joy at Christmas given Mary's song this morning we also heard uh, from Matthew's Gospel now we heard last week from John and John uh, was talking about uh, how Jesus was the one to come and that was clearly causing him a lot of joy but this week kind of a few chapters on and quite a kind of a year or two on maybe three years uh, John is not so sure John's in prison and he's looking out at what's happening And he's wondering whether he suffered a case of premature joy. And whether Jesus really is the one. One suspects that John was expecting a little bit more winnowing for action to be going on. A little bit more condemnation. And these people are in and the rest of you are condemned. And all he's really getting from Jesus is compassion. Tons and tons of compassion. That's not causing John a whole lot of joy. So he sends messengers off and says, Are you the one? Are you really the one? Or have I got this wrong? And should we be looking for somebody else? Now, in between what we heard last week and what we heard this week, uh, we have a whole lot of teaching, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. which really isn't a mount, it's just a hillock on the Sea of Galilee that overlooks Capernaum. But anyway, it's a Sermon on the Mount, and there's a whole lot of teaching in that. There's the Beatitudes and a whole lot of other stuff. And we've had a whole lot of actions that Jesus has been doing, a whole lot of deeds. So Jesus' answer is simple. Just go back and tell John what you have seen happen. And then he lists a whole lot of things that have been happening. Now, we just read that as a list. But if you know your prophets you would be able to say, well, all of that comes out of the prophet Isaiah. All Matthew has done is cobbled together a list of verses out of Isaiah. And a lot of those verses came out of Isaiah 35, which we heard this morning. So this is a very clever thing that Jesus and Matthew are doing. They are hooking Jesus in to all the expectations based in Isaiah and are saying... Well, if you know your prophets, and if you know, Hosea, if you know Isaiah, then you will be expecting these things, and all of those things that you are coming, that you are expecting, are coming true. So, you make up your mind yourself. 
So that's why we had Isaiah this morning. Kind of, it's where it is in the lectionary, but it links in with this morning's gospel reading as well. So Isaiah. Let's talk about Isaiah for a little bit, because he's interesting. The book Isaiah is in fact three books. Well, at least three books. The first 39 chapters are from the time of Isaiah, and uh, he lived in the 700s, so a long time ago, about 100 years before Jeremiah. So during Isaiah's lifetime, the northern kingdom of Israel still existed. And the Assyrians were the big power of the region, and the Assyrians were particularly good at crushing people they didn't like and dispersing the inhabitants of those kingdoms randomly throughout their entire empire. It was a kind of way of making sure that no one could rise up and oppose them. If you kind of broke everyone up, you got rid of national identities, claims to land, all that kind of stuff. So they just kind of spread people out across their empire, which is why we have the ten lost tribes. So the ten tribes were in the north. They were a bit worried about the activities of the Syrians, of the Assyrians, and they made uh, a pact with the Syrians, and they tried to get Judah, the southern kingdom, in on that pact to oppose the Assyrians. Well, Isaiah's basic message was to the king of Judah, do not enter this pact, trust God, do not trust political pacts, they will not lead to salvation, only God will lead to salvation. Stay out of this. So the Assyrians are a little cheesed about all this, they come through, they crush the Syrians, they crush the Israelites, they disperse them throughout the nations. And then they move on down to Jerusalem and lay siege to that. So that's the kind of time that Isaiah is talking about. And then miraculously the Assyrians, the Assyrians have to pack up and go home because another enemy has arisen somewhere else and they need their army in another place. So that's all understood as God saving them. Now that's the first 40 chapters. And that is the time that Isaiah lived in and was the prophet for. Now, if you are listening very carefully this morning... You would be saying, but today's passage talked about exiles, and there were no exiles at that time from Judah. They survived. So where's this exile stuff coming from? 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, and 39 act as a bridge between 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah. When it was all put together, the editor needed ways of segueing from one time period to the next. So he put in these bridges. And the passage we heard this morning is one of those bridges. The next chunk, 2nd Isaiah, is during the exile, about 140 years later, after Jerusalem is taken and destroyed by the Babylonians. And then 3rd Isaiah, which is uh, um, the last few chapters, uh, 60 to 65, is to the post-exilic period. So that's after they return in about 538. Um, Cyrus the Mede comes down, destroys the Babylonian Empire, creates the Persian Empire, and uh, says to all the captured people, you can go home now. You don't have to, but you can. So some of the people go home, and that's the post-exilic period. And that's the last little piece of Isaiah as we have it. But the piece that we have comes from 1st Isaiah. Now the point 
that Isaiah was making in the passage that we heard was that in the last days there would be great healing. In the last days the the exiles would be restored. The land would be renewed. The desert was going to get all watery. Uh, Exiles were going to come home. And society would be transformed along the lines that Mary talks about with the poor having enough, with the rich being brought down, with the powerful being brought down, with the powerless being given power. So it was a total transformation of society. It's inherent in there. One could ask, is God a Marxist? And the answer could be yes. In fact, one of the inspirations for Marx and other Marxist writers was the Bible. But don't tell the people on Fox News that. So all of that is inherent in Jesus' answer. John says to him, I was expecting a bit more winnowing for action. And Jesus responds, well, I am bringing to fruition everything that Isaiah hoped for. The renewal of creation and the transformation of society. The exiles, for they are all those who have been pushed to the edges of their society, were now, through Jesus, being brought back in. A total transformation of how people understood the people of God, how they understood society to be working, how the whole thing worked. Jesus was offering a completely, well, new vision in some ways, but it wasn't a new vision. It was the vision held in the prophets. It was the vision particularly held in Isaiah. Now both... All, actually, all three of the Synoptic Gospels clearly think Isaiah is very important to understanding Jesus. Luke has it in Luke 4. In Nazareth, he reads, the, he reads a passage from the prophet Isaiah and he says, Today you have heard this fulfilled. It is coming true. So they try to kill him. To, in Matthew, we have it in answer to John's question. It is coming true. So it's not just that Jesus somehow is making this true, it's his agenda. He has adopted it as what he is seeking to do. Now John, Jesus' answer to John is very clever. First of all, in his world, the only way he could really answer that question is the way he does it. In our world, we'd go, of course I am. I am the Messiah. And this is how I'm showing it. And there'd be a little bit of... uh, well, there'd probably be a great fanfare and he'd probably have a TV show and it would be very in your face because that's how we do things. But in Jesus' time, that would be a dishonourable way of answering the question. The only way you can answer the question is by saying, well, look at what I'm doing and make up your own mind. So Jesus does that. He does the honourable thing because he is not a person of honour. Remember, he's a son of very poor parents who come from a horrible place where nothing good comes out of and certainly no one with any honour came from there. And he is a peasant carpenter. So he doesn't have a whole lot of honour to play with in the first place, but he answers in an honourable way, accruing honour to himself and the person who asked the question. But he also, in doing that, says to John, you have to make up your own mind. I can't tell you. And through that, Matthew was saying to us, you have to make up your own mind. Is Jesus really the one you wish to follow? That's the question we have to face this Sunday as we listen to that gospel reading. And 
The next thing that Jesus does is he clearly says, I stand in the prophetic tradition. I stand particularly in the tradition of Isaiah. And that is my agenda. Is that your agenda, John? Is that what you're looking for? And Matthew uses that to say to his community, Jesus stood in the tradition of Isaiah. Where do we stand? Jesus' agenda, what shaped his ministry, was Isaiah. What shapes us? So as we think about Christmas, we are asked that exact same question. What agenda shapes us? How we live out our faith? And that takes us back to the question I asked at the beginning. What brings God joy at Christmas? I'll leave you to think about that. Over the last couple of weeks, I've invited you each Sunday to spend time each day, at the end of every day, reflecting on a a couple of questions. So this week, I invite you to think about in how you have lived that day, How has God brought joy into your life? And in how you have lived this day, how have you added to the joy that God seeks to bring this world? And how have you added joy to to the joy that God seeks to bring this world? Two questions to think about.